It's April 15th, 2021. This is Rook. As a teenager, she was recruited to do translation and guidance for the New York Times in Iran. Since then, she's turned that early experience into an impressive international broadcasting career, including the last two decades at the BBC. Pune Kodusi is a television anchor, radio presenter, and senior producer who has become a familiar face on BBC Persian and BBC World. She has been at the top of her game, anchoring in both English and Persian, as well as reporting from crisis zones, and now she's stepped into a major business role with the BBC World Service. Pune Odusi joins me for a feature interview today, plus another edition of It's All Persian to Us and more. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rook. there. Welcome to episode number 102, 102 of Rook. Welcome to those of you tuning in from around the world, our Australian friends, those in Germany and Iran, the United States, all across Canada. Hello to you from Toronto. Uh, yo, yo, yo. <laughs> nice to have you with us. Hello, uh, fabulous Kion. Hi, Gian. We are on an ongoing mission, Keon. Yes, I believe we are. To build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity coming to you on Spotify, on SoundCloud, uh, Instagram, YouTube, iTunes, CastBox, Telegram. If you'd like to see some visuals with your Rook, switch over to YouTube right now. And if you like your Rook descriptions and bulletins in English and Persian, Check us out on Telegram. Lots mm-hmm. of options for you, Keon. We have it all. That's right. Or a, a few options. Well, anyway. yes. All, all of <laughs> yes. the required options. Hello, Captain Reza. Hello, sir. And hello, Groovy Shy. Oh, yes. Pune Kodusi coming up in just a little bit. Uh, I'm very happy to have her coming on the show. You know, I uh, said this, I think, on our Monday program, but I think she's one of the few people in the world, one of the few mm-hmm. broadcasters, Anchors who has been at the top of her game, at the top of the world game, you know, uh, both in Persian with BBC Persian and in English with BBC World, where she's anchored to, you know, uh, an audience of 400, 500 million people. Uh, She's a great broadcaster. She's uh, uh, done this for many years and now she's moving into the business side of BBC as well. Not bad for a kid from Iran. It's pretty impressive to be able to switch from English to Persian. It's uh, me right? and you will never have that talent. Well, don't include me. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I mean, you especially. Dystopian <laughs> visions. No, I, I think, but you're right. No, it's very impressive. She, at the age, I mean, as the story goes, and people who know Pune might know this part of her story, which is that she's a kid in Iran, and uh, uh, she gets, she, she randomly, I mean, happens to get called to be a fixer, to be a, a translator and helper and a guide mm-hmm. at the age of 18 uh, for publications like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. And that 
parlays into a, a media career. Some but crazy yeah, story. I mean, she's good at what she does, and she's got. Uh, she'll no doubt have a lot of interesting perspectives about broadcasting. So we'll get to that. Mm. Uh, I have to announce before that, though, it is the one-year anniversary of Rook. Yeah. Yes. I thought you were going to play some music, Shia. Like some, I'm so boring. So. <laughs> Why have you become? Uh, it's our one-year anniversary uh, tomorrow. Tomorrow is the we launched one year ago. Tomorrow, April sixteenth, uh, twenty twenty, was when we launched. Wow. I mean, it's you know, uh, Captain Reza was just a fresh-faced teenager when we started last year. So sweet and innocent. Now he looks like Mullah, Taliban. He looks like Mullah Omar from no. the from the Taliban. A, 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 a grizzled man in his fifties. Uh, he was combing his beard. Yeah, he's Don't of, you dare comment you on remember me. Remember Mullah Omar? He would come out for the press conferences. I think he wore a patch as well. Uh, Groovy Shia also yes. feeling the effects of one year at Rook. You know, he was a handsome young hipster musician. Uh, now he looks like a like a fishmonger. You know, he's working at the oh, wharf. It's because he's wearing you, a woolly cap. Do you like what? some piquerel or some salmon? Yes. Shia, he says you look like one of those people that works at the fish market. You know, oh, like a fish no, market. you're on the wharf. You're at the wharf <laughs> and where the water is, and you you bring in the fish. You know, <laughs> you've got a cable net sweater, and a <laughs> it's actually a very noble profession. Listen, yeah, a lot cooler than a musician. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Kian Jun, you just don't you just keep it. getting you, <laughs> don't you, you keep dare. getting better. No. That's what I was going to say. Wow, I'm you shocked. You just keep getting better. <laughs> oh, you're going to say you can't be too polish or No, that's not. No, no, no. Uh, listen, it, I'm proud of everybody. What a great team we started this with on a, on a, a hunch about uh, exploring the connective tissue of Iranians around the diaspora, and um, it's been such an interesting year of learning and. Uh, growing and talking to some incredible people and, and uh, trying to discover uh, our identity, our issues, explore uh, and celebrate a lot of what makes us Iranian and the, and the amazing people doing things around the world, but also contend with a lot of the the, the issues or challenges that we also face. So uh, it, it, very proud of us uh, and, and proud of you guys, especially fishmongers and uh, <laughs> mullahs and uh, all of you. Might I add, it, this all started in the middle of a pandemic. It did. And it continues in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> as we, um, You know, Thoughtful Nagin, Shout out to Thoughtful Nagin. Another, yeah, truly, by the way, yeah. the thanks go to our whole crew who've been so great uh, this year. We've got a really a team that is like a little family, you know. And Thoughtful Nagin, of course, is part of that team. Uh, she arrived. She brought, dropped off some food today. You know, let me tell you something, uh, <laughs> Captain Reza. There comes a time in a man's life yep. <laughs> when he realizes what true love is. That's true. And that is... Tachin with Qayme inside of it. <laughs> did you try some of that? Of course I did. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Mouth. Shaya, can you show Captain Reza so where the microphone yes, is? <laughs> it's only been a year. He needs a couple He's of years. sleeping. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, I did try it and it was delicious. She yeah. brought three different ones. Both Qayme, Bagali Polo, Tachin with Bagali Polo. Little Tachin like Inside cakes. of it oh, is yeah. like... Kian, you didn't delicious. have it. I had a little bit. No, I you was, didn't. I actually Regime did. Get it, I was trying to resist and I I couldn't. I saw that game is stuffed inside us. So a, good. A oh. I was like, oh. Abyss, and get it while you can, because Shia, the, the vacuum cleaner, <laughs> Shia, the vacuum cleaner, who never gets fat. 
The rest of us are I all like him. trying to work out, and it. He just, I hate that fishmonger yeah. right there. The fishmonger <laughs> working on the wharf. To, <laughs> poor fishmongers. Yeah. I don't know if they're listening. But <laughs> listen, and the other thing is so thoughtful, Nagin. And then now uh, we've we've had the privilege here of, of some people over the last year. Uh, there was uh, people have dropped off art. People have dropped mm-hmm. off little gifts. And uh, and a couple of times we've had food or you know goodies dropped off. So there's a cake out mm. there that is I don't even want to touch it because it's the coolest thing I've ever seen. It's, it's like a it it's got a radio microphone and and headphones. Did you not see it yet? No, Shana? no. Captain Reza, explain what this is. It's, <laughs> it's it looks incredible. It looks like if you'd show that cake to somebody, uh-huh. they'd be they'd, they'd be like, oh, is this for a podcast? Like that's oh, how incredible it's beautiful. It says all the and it's got Farsi and English yeah. on it, and it's got explanations of what so we do. Good. And we're gonna obviously we have to post it. Yeah, uh, 100%. it'll probably be posted by the time you guys are hearing this. But it's this cake. There's a bakery in Aurora, Ontario. So those of you who know uh, where we live in in Canada and in, in, in the Toronto area, but an hour north of Toronto is a place called Aurora. There's a place called Arnica Bakery. A woman named Mariam Arnica Bakery who is a fan of the show and made this one year anniversary wow. cake. That's yeah. so sweet. So it's, it is sweet. Literally I sweet. I, well, yeah, I haven't had it yet, but I mean, we, you know, we are inviting sponsors for Rook uh, now, but apparently you can just give us food and I'll talk about you. <laughs> I'll talk about you at the top of the show. <laughs> just people have figured it out. Let's see, uh, we can either sponsor them or give them a cake and then they'll just talk about how great I am. Uh, no, but listen, uh, Mariam John, uh, Arnica Bakery, I, uh, I guess you can order from them. Uh, I went on their Instagram, and there's a lot of different kinds of cakes and stuff. But, uh, wow, it is just beautiful, and I'm sure it's delicious. We haven't, we haven't ruined it yet. No, by, uh, Shia, don't touch yeah. it. <laughs> anyway, one-year anniversary. Congratulations to, to the and, – and obviously the biggest uh, thanks goes to uh, the, those of you out there who've been um, – uh, tuning in and supporting us and subscribe. I mean, we really, I remember when we started and, and um, our Instagram account had like 30 followers <laughs> and I was almost embarrassed. Of them were we, were, we were like embarrassed <laughs> to tell the guests coming on, like, oh, we've got an Instagram because they would go to it and go, uh, these guys have 30 followers, you know? And 30 of them were like my mom and, you know, Catherine Reza's Half girlfriend. And yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, now we have uh, thirty-five. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's uh, eight hundred thousand streams and eleven thousand subscribers, and we're just building this thing. And again, uh, if you do, if you folks out there really do want to support us, uh, you can become a patron at uh, rookmedia.com. Anyway, enough nonsense. I I wanted to say I thought we would have music or some kind of <laughs> tashi fat, you know, oh, but. Uh, but I see how patronizing oh. they are. You say one word. Oh, Afarim, baby. She goes to in. She does it for us. How do you know Tashrifat? How do I not know Tashrifat? I, I, you know, I don't know Tashrifat. I've never used that word. <laughs> what is that word? <laughs> uh, listen, um, we've got some great guests coming up in the next uh, couple of weeks. Our one-year anniversary of Rook, we're going to keep this thing going. Obviously, Punek coming up in a few moments from London, England. Monday, Professor Richard Foltz, whose area of study is uh, uh, Iranian history, but particularly, I want to talk to him about Iran and Iranians before Islam. Mm. 
Who were we before 1400 years ago? I'm very much actually looking, I've been reading his books and looking forward to this interview. So Richard Fultz coming up, and Persian yoga, a guy by the name of Kashi Azad, but he goes by Persian yoga, he's in Australia. He's got a, quite an online presence. He does what he calls Persian yoga, which hmm. basically is old school Iran Persian fitness in the Zurkhune. Have you ever oh, heard of a Zurkhune? Yeah, 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 the Koshti, the big guys that do the. Not Koshti, no? though. They the, swing this like right. bat club like thing. Right. Uh, you know what that is? You yeah, seen that? It, yeah, and it's done in like some kind of sauna room? Or well, something? it's called uh, a Zurkhune, but Zurkhune. it's not yeah. really a sauna room. It looks like a Turkish bath. Yeah, like. exactly. Yeah. And it's a bunch of men that do it. It is a bunch of men, although now it is, uh, there's a Zurkhune, I think, in north of Toronto where they, they've made a co-ed and this guy uh, Kashi Azad I mean I'll ask him about it but yeah. he's he's inviting women uh, into the Zulukhuna as well it used to be a, a male yeah, yeah. sort of strength traditional showing. stereotype warrior type thing yeah. but anyway he calls it Persian yoga oh. and uh, and so we'll talk to him in Australia uh, Peter Banifaz if you haven't been have you been following I cannot him? wait for he's him. very I funny I love that guy he's very funny looking forward to having him Shirin Nasiri who's also quite a personality and, and a broadcaster herself Bahman Qobadi. Now, this guy, uh, he is my one of my. Well, he's certainly one of my favorite filmmakers in the world. I'm so honored that he's he's not doesn't do very many interviews. In fact, I don't think he's done an interview for years, uh, a serious one. And uh, he he's the guy who um, in in the year 2000 he ba- he basically made the first feature film about Kurds or shot in Kurdistan mm-hmm. called A Time for Drunken Horses. Mm-hmm. And that launched his career and an award-winning career of, of films. Although lately he has been spending less time making films and more time on the ground in places like Erbil, teaching um, kids, teaching young people film, teaching uh, um, young Kurds. Uh, he he's a he's a really interesting guy, a very talented filmmaker, and he's kind of coveted by the by these. People around the world, like uh, Marty Scorsese, Martin Scorsese, <laughs> uh, sort of adopted Batman Robadi and uh, you know is uh, helping to produce one of his films now, and is, is his buddy, and he's been shooting things with Roger Waters. I mean, he, <laughs> there's a lot of things we're going to get into with Batman Robadi, but he's coming up on the show in, in the coming days, and Piaz Mioz who is a, a fabulous young chef and uh, social media presence as well. Looking forward to having him on the program. You know, on Monday we had um, Farzana Milani, Dr. Farzana Milani mm-hmm. and, uh, on the program, and, and we, she was talking about how it was only when she left Iran that she really found who she is as an Iranian. She, mm-hmm. I left Iran to become an Iranian was the way she talked about it. She also talked about how she sees her home in a bicultural way. She both identifies as American, where she lives now, and Iranian. Tomorrow on Clubhouse, inspired by that and a lot of the conversations we have. 4 p.m. Eastern time tomorrow, we're gonna do our weekly Rook Town Hall. Where do we identify as home? Mm-hmm. Where do we identify? And and I mentioned it on Monday. The other thing that, that uh, Farzana Milani said was she was talking about Furuk Farzad. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about how Furuk Farzad always felt like an outsider in Iran. In Iran. Never left Iran, oh. but never really felt like Iran was home. This person who's become an icon now of Iranian poetry and female literature and uh, strength. and So um, lots to explore with this topic. Off the top of your head, Reza, 
Where would you, tomorrow on Clubhouse, when I say, where do we identify as home, what do you say? Be honest, truth be told, Toronto. You identify Toronto as your home. Yeah, yeah. I always said that. I'm like, I'm Iranian by birth, Canadian by choice. And um, uh, I'm proud of it. I'm 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 very proud of it. I'm proud of because I consider. There's a wake up, wake up. Oh, I'm, yeah, dude, I'm we can't. I'm we can barely even really? hear this guy. What? <laughs> Where do you identify as home? <laughs> I would say Toronto. Are you even alive right now? <laughs> Somebody get him an injection. Can we get you the vaccine? Will it's that wake you up? It's the tachin. It's the tachin. Oh, I need Jesus. a B12 shot now. I'm oh, sorry I asked you. <laughs> Keon John. Uh, well, we'll sorry. talk about it. Well, tomorrow on yeah, Clubhouse. We'll, we'll do it we'll tomorrow on Clubhouse. Gosh. All right. Uh, by the way, it's a, it's all Persian to us coming up, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's all. Do you want to give us say. any hints? Uh, I I don't know how to without giving it away. Oh, it's uh, it can be a form of art. All right. Yes. A form of art that Persians invented. Yes. All right. That's done outdoors. That could be a lot of things. Oh, that's done outdoors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It can be a form of art. You said oh, it's seen as a form of it's art. It's seen as yes. a form of all art. All right. All right. Uh, a new edition of It's All Persian to Us coming up in about an hour. Uh, Captain Reza, get some sleep. Uh, Ruby Shia, <laughs> <laughs> the fabulous Keon. We'll see you all in a little bit. Let's get to our feature guest. My guest today is a world-renowned television anchor, radio presenter, output editor, and senior producer who has worked with a variety of news, current affairs, features, and interactive programs for BBC. She is the business development manager for global partnerships at the BBC World Service and one of BBC's select group of multilingual presenters. Pune Odusi started her career in journalism in 1990 in her birthplace, Iran, working for the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, and has freelanced for a great number of international media outlets since then, including the Washington Post, the Toronto Star, the Daily Telegraph, the Financial Times, NPR, and PBS. Over more than two decades with the BBC, she has edited, produced, and presented programs on BBC World News, BBC Persian Television, and the BBC World Service Radio. She was the host of the award-winning interactive program Nobata Shoma, Your Turn, on BBC Television, Persian Television, for four years. Pune is also a BBC senior media trainer, helping educate the next generation of journalists and presenters on editorial and legal guidelines, interviewing skills, social media verification, digital and mobile journalism, and editorial leadership. Puna speaks English, Persian, French, and understands Arabic, Italian, Portuguese, and German. She is one of those rare folks who has been at the top of the game as an anchor in both Farsi with BBC Persian and English with BBC World. And right now, Pune Rodusi joins me from London, England today. Hello. I'm humbled. I'm humbled. That was the longest introduction anyone has ever given me. <laughs> You're exhausted. I'm one of the sweetest. <laughs> You're exhausted. Uh, well, you deserve yeah, it. Thank you. That's like my career in a whole paragraph. By the way, I mean, I can't help that you speak a hundred languages. I had to go through the whole list. If you just limit it to English and Persian, it would have been a lot easier. No, no, no. I speak a little bit of everything and a, a lot or enough of nothing, <laughs> including Persian and Farsi, because... My, my brain is a bit mixed up with all the languages. I don't know what language I dream in, what language I curse in, which is obviously supposed to be the main tests of a language speaker. But I'm a little bit of everything and actually nothing. 
<laughs> well, we uh, certainly not nothing. There's a you really are international though. You're an international human, and I'll get into that. Maybe that'll form the subtext of this interview because you're who you are. Your I'm career. a global nomad for sure. <laughs> you well, you're you're global. That's for you know. Let me start here. There's a sense with some people that they are in a field that they're destined to be in, and that's the way. I feel when I watch you or listen to you broadcast, you're not just world-class in various languages, but you are comfortable in your own skin. And and I, I always tell young journalists that the key, the magic of, of, of broadcasting is to make the audience feel comfortable with you so that they will believe you and feel comfortable themselves and want to watch or listen. Do you believe that's true? That's a very sweet thing to say. I think the superpower of anyone who wants to get into this business is to be able to comfortably open up, genuinely open up, show interest in people genuinely again, and allow people to open up back to them. And anyone who can do that would be great at this business. You don't have to study journalism or international relations or politics for 20 years, but it helps. <laughs> but yes, there is that human contact um, aspect of things. And how do you genuinely open up? You? I have no shame, one. <laughs> I have nothing to hide, two. <laughs> um, I don't know, I'm generally curious. I was a fuzul child, a nosy child as a kid. I was always told, don't do this, don't go there, it's too early for you, too dangerous for you. And Naturally, whenever they told me, don't put your finger in that electricity plug, that was exactly what I was heading for. <laughs> um, and I think that curiosity or genuine um, intrigue in what's going on in the, in the world with the people just got me into this. I never thought I would grow up and be a journalist at all. I oh, probably really? didn't know what a journalist was when I was 10 or 15 even. Um, I sort of dived into it in a roulette kind of a way <laughs> or in a runaway train kind of a way that someone just switches the line before you really know it and you're in another career course or country course or life course. And I love that. Hang on. Let me get to the, <laughs> let me get to the runaway train <laughs> and the roulette <laughs> because that I, I, I definitely want to talk about that. But two steps back when you were just talking about, see, I don't think it's only about opening yourself up because especially in this moment in the 21st century where social media and Instagram stores and it is so much about just opening up oneself. I, I think you have to add to that, and you did then, it, the curiosity element and the willingness to listen. Would you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. I think people on social media, or a lot of people right now, confuse putting yourself out there for self-promotion with putting yourself out there because of interest in life and its people and, and the world. And I think having genuine interest in other people is what makes you really good in this business. Not having an interest in promoting yourself, showing how clever you are, how great your research is, how prepared you are for the interview. A lot of interviewees end up asking questions that are longer than the answers <laughs> of the interviewee, <laughs> um, which is a bit to say, see how much I know about this, how much I've researched about that, how well I know this, how well I know the world. 
how I can guess what's going to happen next. So what do you leave for the person, poor person to tell you? Yes. I think the truth is to seek the truth, not to try to show off that you know it. And, and as you know, social media is full of accounts who are just there because they want to talk about themselves. But a real journalist should really not be a player in the game themselves. I always, when I, when I used to train newcomer journalists um, in my training courses at the BBC, I always say one of the first things I do in the first session is say, remember, this is not a tennis match. You're not an equal player in an equal game on the same court. Right. This is like a squash match. You're the wall back there. They're supposed to bounce their ideas and their discussions and their opinions off uh, on you. Yeah. You're supposed to just bounce it back and reflect on these, but you're not supposed to play, take a racket and join the game as if you're part of the game yourself. And I think it's sort of pulling yourself out of the story, allowing the story to develop without you being a star in it, allowing the other person or the actual story to be the star in it. You know, it's gratifying to hear you say that. And not to go too far into this rabbit hole before, because I, I, I do want to make it about your story. But, but it makes me sad that so much of so-called journalism or interviewing uh, or broadcasting, especially when it comes to television uh, these days and television news, has been equated with good journalism, has been equated with ambushing the guest with some ammunition that you're going to expose them ideologically with or something. And I, I don't know. Making if them look like an idiot. I, well, that, that, and I, you win. <laughs> I think it's partly a byproduct of the Trump era and just the nature of the world in general where everything's become so Manichaean. You're either a good guy or a bad guy. And so if you bring somebody on from the other side, you have to attack them. But but that's not what I, I've ever seen in interviewing to be, that the idea that you bring somebody on and yell at them and prove that they're a bad person or that, you know, <laughs> that they, they've got the wrong it's not prescription. confrontation for the sake of confrontation. I know many channels thrive on that and their audiences love it. They're just there for the punch up. It's like watching WWF more than watching the news or watching right, a discussion right, program. Right. But to me, it's not really about that. And yet, I'm sure you've had the experience. I mean, not that you don't, of course, you should ask the responsible questions and, and, and hold people to account to a certain extent. But I'm sure you've had, the, had, had this happen to you either at BBC World or certainly BBC Persian where you would bring somebody on and the audience, some audience who disagrees with that person will be angry at you for simply not yelling at them for half an hour. <laughs> and you, you sort of go, well, my job is to extract who this person is and what they believe and for you to decide what you think, not for me to yell at them. Absolutely. My job is to expose this person and what they believe in and expose their ideas and expose what's going on in the world. It's your job to make up your mind about whether you like it, whether you approve of it, whether you agree with it or not. It's not my job to tell you, hello, this is good, this is bad, do this, don't do that. And I think, again, a lot of, I don't want to sound preachy, like we know at the BBC how to do things and no one uh -oh. else does. It's really here, not here the Here we case. go. <laughs> Everyone can improve. We can all improve, all of us together as a as a media family. But I think the secret is just to let people see the facts, open them up, shred them into pieces, let them understand it, and then let them decide what their judgment is going to be about it and not take sides and allow people to take their own sides. Yeah, I mean, I guess 
there's an expectation at this point that from from certain people in the certain folks in the audience and, and maybe that because they've been sort of taught this in terms of the way some people some broadcasters operate that your job is to take a side but yeah uh, a lot of people want a lot more from you yeah they want you to bang on someone's head and hang someone from a rope in your studio if you can but um, they can do that themselves. They don't really need us yeah, for that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then there's the question of platforming. I can't believe you brought John Bolton on and didn't say this to him, right? Uh, you know, sometimes there is a, a, a legitimate point to be made about, you know, putting the person, holding them to account for something they've done or said or, or asking the questions. But the expectation that it Absolutely. has to be a, a, some kind of a, a battle because you disagree with the, the guest is, is a straight, I have to feel that that's that's a product of the newer era. I have to feel that, you know, that's not Walter Cronkite journalism. That's something else. No, I think class and elegance and genuine interest is something that we shouldn't forget and shouldn't lose sight of. And just being flashy and having the most gorgeous studios and having the most gorgeous outfits, but not having done your research well enough to be able to help the audience understand what really is going on in that person's head um, is the bit that we sometimes miss. And, and all of us miss it. I mean, you're right. I've done a million interviews with some really big people and I've finished the interview and gone, damn, I should have asked this and this and this. Like every time you have a fight with someone when it's over, you think, ah, I should have said right. this and that right. more. Right. But that's, that's how it is. Nobody's perfect. And you, we're all doing this spontaneously, however much you research however number of questions you plan to ask someone, in the middle of the conversation, another question is going to come up and the road is going to go a different way and you're going to be diverted into a different subject, which you may not have fully prepared for or fully planned for. And I think that is beautiful and that is great, but spontaneity has its side effects as well. It's so interesting to me a few months ago that you said that um, this wasn't the plan for you to get into to broadcasting or to get into media or to get into journalism uh, because it feels like it was destiny. I mean, with you, the story is actually is actualized by your teens when you're working for the the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal as a fixer and a reporter in Iran. You know, most journalists would work a lifetime and not get a gig at the New York Times. H how did this happen to a young woman, a girl in Iran? It's funny you should say that because recently, I don't know, somewhere I posted a story about, it was the anniversary of the earthquake, uh, Rudbar Manjil earthquake in Iran in 1990 when I suddenly got drawn into this business. And I posted something saying I was only 18. I arrived at the earthquake zone uh, working for the New York Times. And immediately a bunch of people, I assume trolls only, hmm. said, oh, you must have had connections or it was nepotism. What 18-year-old becomes a journalist with the New York Times? Who, how much did you pay or who did you sleep with? Or this is impossible. Your story is unbelievable. It is, in a way, a little bit unbelievable. But I was in the first year of university in Iran. I spoke good enough English already because I, um, I did since I was a child. But I had a French teacher, an adorable lady, a French lady in Iran who taught French at her home. She called me and she said a bunch of foreign journalists have arrived in Iran. It was the first time they allowed a bunch of foreign journalists to come in because they wanted to get foreign aid into the country since the revolution. So 
five or six foreign journalists were allowed to arrive to go to the earthquake zone. She put me in touch with people from the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. I borrowed my mother's high heels and her silk scarf <laughs> and her handbag to look a little bit more grown up because I was in torn jeans and Doc Martens at that age. <laughs> um, I arrived in some hotel lobby, talked to these people. They said, uh, we need to head to the earthquake zone in three hours. We've just arrived. And this is a day after the most devastating earthquake in Iran. And my first answer was, um, excuse me, I have to go home and ask permission from my parents to go with you. This is before mobile phones and everything. Um, so yes, I was a kid. I was totally unprepared for this, besides the fact that I spoke fluent English, which was the only asset that was helpful at that time. Uh, I ended up going home, packing up my toothbrush and backpack and getting onto a Red Crescent helicopter and arriving onto an earthquake zone that was, you know, most horrible than any horrible Hollywood movie you've ever seen. And standing there just frozen and shocked and horrified at what's going on around me. And I had no idea what to do. And I was supposed to run around and translate and interpret what was going on. So, yes, I got thrown into the deep end of a pool within five hours notice, maybe. Wow. And it changed my life. And I'm grateful because exactly at the same time as I thought this is the most horrendous thing that could have ever happened to me, it was also one of the most thrilling experiences and there and then I thought this is it this is it for me and how did your parents feel about you doing this <sighs> they've always been super cool and supportive and probably as adventurous and well-traveled as I wanted to be so that's always been great but about maybe 20 years later when the BAM earthquake happened my father went to the earthquake zone with a delegation for his work about a year after the earthquake. 13 years later, 2003, so, I think it was. Yeah. Yes, yes. I wasn't in Iran then anymore. I was working at the BBC in London. And he called me and he said, girl, how did you go to an earthquake zone when you were 18 and come back? And we had a chat about it and it was, you know, fine, we thought. I am devastated and, and horrified and really unwell a week or two after going to a place a year after the earthquake. How did you cope with this? We did not really understand what you went through or what was really happening to you at the time. And I didn't really. I mean, this was way before I understood what PTSD was. That's actually one of my questions I want to come back to with you because you are one of those people who's been at the front lines of a lot uh, and a lot of uh, uh, difficulty and a lot of atrocities and a lot of um, horrible events. And, and so I do wonder how that, I think your your dad's question was a sage one and, and I'll, I'll put that to you in a little bit, but let me just stick with where you where we are in the story because you want to ask what countries I've been arrested in <laughs> how many oh, countries <laughs> I didn't I, I didn't know there was a list of uh, arrested countries as well um, Old question yes you described a few minutes ago uh, the your 
nomadic and very international life as something of a roulette wheel adventure. Um, so if I can get into the roulette wheel, let's let's just set the stage. Sure. For you're born Put in your I- bet on. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> you're born in Iran, but you, as I understand it, had actually left the country with your family when the revolution happened in, in 1979. You were seven years old when the revolution happened. And then your family... We happened to be in the States when the revolution was happening. And then we went back to Iran afterwards. So where my mind goes is this kid who's been in pre-revolution Iran returns with the family to the new Islamic Republic. Um, with a bit of an American accent. With a bit of an American accent. a big accent. trouble in Iranian school for the first few years. So what was that like for you? It was um, strange. I, I didn't come from elite or, you know, upper middle-class family in Iran. My father and mother both worked in banks as regular employees, you know, entry-level, post-university. We weren't connected to anywhere. They were really clever and kind to save their money as young parents and send me and my brother to international schools and English teachers since we were like three, four. And that really has made all the difference. But yes, my dad worked in the States for a little while on an exchange program with the bank. And we happened to be in the States, for example, when the Sinamarex situation, the big fire happened in the height of the protests before the revolution. And I remember we were in a hotel lobby uh, coming from a dinner and my parents suddenly froze in, in front of a TV screen watching the news about the fire in Iran, and I didn't quite understand what was going on, but I could see tear flowing down my mother's eyes, and I was going on, like, what's happening? And it was images of the Cinema Rex fire in Iran. So yes, we went back to Iran after the revolution. I went to Iranian school with a little tiny scarf on my head as a, like, eight-year-old, nine-year-old. Uh, I had a bit of an accent, so the kids and the teachers made a little bit of fun of me for saying, for example, Christmas instead of Kirismas. <laughs> but it was fine. I mean, I spoke Farsi well enough, and I'd already skipped a year. Um, in Between first grade and third grade, I didn't do second grade elementary, so I skipped a year. So I always felt a little bit left out or behind or away from the crowd that I was in. I was a year younger than everybody all throughout my school, high school, university. By the time you're in university in Iran and you're set to come west, uh, I'm always curious whether the person, a person like you especially, whose career outside of Iran related to Iran has been so big and so public for the last 20 years, when you left Iran, and I know you ended up coming even to Canada for a stint, did you have a sense that that was going to be forever? I mean, did you were you saying goodbye to Iran, I'm now headed to, for the diaspora, or did it feel like maybe I'll go and, and do some education and then return somehow? To be honest, I don't want to say I left and I thought I'm never going to look behind my back, because that's not the case. But there was a point that I had worked as a journalist in Iran with New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Toronto Star, Boston Globe, um, I don't know, Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, uh, numerous newspapers. So I had already been working for six, seven years as a stringer, as a fixer in Iran. 
I had been arrested and harassed and bothered so much, and it was so difficult doing what I really wanted to be doing. And also for my parents, who had the deeds to the house on top of the TV stand, ready to come and bail me out whenever I get arrested, because it was that much of a regular wow. event. Wow. At some point, it came to this point of like, not just me, but everyone telling me, my mom said, you know, I'd love for you to stay in Iran and get married and live upstairs and have kids and stay here, but it's time for you to leave. This this is not working for you. If you want to continue in this career, if, if this is what you want to be doing, this is not sustainable for you. And it really wasn't because there was a point that, I mean, my file in Ershad and intelligence was already this big when I was in my early 20s. <laughs> Which I take that as a compliment, but I don't know if they do. Sorry, Puna, explain to folks out there what what a fixer means and and then um, why you would be getting arrested for what what is it that you were doing? Okay, um, in 1990, when I started, I wasn't a journalist. I was a very low level translator, interpreter slash like a tour guide or a work guide for foreign journalists who came to Iran, who didn't know where to go, who to talk to, how to navigate the nuances of being in Iran or you know, going about without getting into trouble. And I was already uh, quite a savvy little street smart girl, I think, for my age. Um, I spoke the language, I spoke a bit of French, I spoke English already. I knew you know, how to contact people, how to get interviews. I knew who to recommend. If they said, I'm looking for an underground musician, I'm looking for an artist, I'm looking for a filmmaker. I knew people to connect to them and tell them, suggest interview this person or that person. So it's sort of a, the right-hand person for a journalist without being an actual journalist. You're like a glorified assistant slash interpreter. And that's how I started. And then at some point when the journalists uh, cannot come to Iran to cover a story, they will commission you to write an article or contribute to an article, which I did for several years. For some of those years, I actually worked under somebody else's name because I would get into serious trouble in Iran. And even for doing the stringer slash fixer work, I had to go report myself to the Ministry of Islamic Culture and Guidance on a weekly basis say who we plan to go and see, get a written permission, put my photograph on it, get a stamp, wear my chador and, you know, take away my nail varnish and go sit there like a good girl and say, we promise to behave, please let us do this and do this. And at that time, there were really about three or four people who did that. So we were a very small pool and all the foreign journalists of all of the outlets of all of the countries knew these three, four people to get in touch with through their own connections. When they came to Iran, they contacted one of us and ended up working with us for two, three weeks. So that's what a fixer really is. But then slowly, it sort of gradually develops into them giving their notebook to you and you actually doing the interviews because they don't really know what's going on. Some places it's so sensitive. I remember one of the coolest or first interviews I did was, do you know Daniel Pearl, the Wall Street journalist who of course. was beheaded yeah. in Pakistan? He was a very close and good friend of mine and a colleague. We went to the shrine of uh, Khomeini in Iran, 
and there were a young couple, a young pastor and his very new wife sitting there praying, like tying knots to the shrine, making a wish for their married life to be blissful. And I ended up sitting with them and chatting with them for an hour and interviewing them about their problems and their life. And they really opened up to us. But it really wasn't a situation that I could translate every sentence back and forth because I had gotten into this groove with them. And it would have made them really uncomfortable if I would have joined an American journalist in the conversation and made them, you know, claw back in and, and close up. So I ended up doing the whole interview, doing everything myself, and then telling Daniel about it later. Like, this is what they were saying. This is what I was asking. Right. So you sort of gradually become a journalist, but not officially until sure. you go get a <laughs> more developed job on it. By the way, I mean, my in my experience in media, I, uh, going back to what you said at the beginning of this interview, I do not believe, I do believe in higher education. I believe people should uh, go and learn as much as they can. And, and a liberal arts education, I will always defend and promote. But I don't necessarily think you need to go to journalism school to be a great broadcaster or to be a great journalist. Uh, uh, a lot of it is is that experience in the field is doing what you did. And I mean, unbeknownst to you you're you're in the hot spots of of that people travel around the world to get to and you're, you're already there Absolutely. And you're, you're when i did go out. to journalism school everybody said to me are you stupid you've been doing this for eight <laughs> right, years right. everybody comes here for three four years dying to go out and right. get a job with right. the wall street journal or uh, the daily telegraph or the guardian or <laughs> whatever <laughs> so this is interesting to me you end up coming to i mean it's funny because you're clearly hard working and you're clearly good at what you do from a, a young age i mean even at Thank that you. well look i mean even at that stage the new york times doesn't retain keep hiring an 18 year old unless they're doing a good job so I, it's clear that you okay. you know you were doing it right but it's also you have this interesting, I mean, maybe this is what you mean by the roulette wheel, but this interesting trajectory where things just kind of happen with you. You come to Canada, you're doing university here in Toronto, and if I have the story straight, a friend of yours applies on your behalf, unbeknownst to you, for a job for you <laughs> at BBC yeah. Persian, and you get the job and go to London. Is that right? Very true. Yes. So, yes, I finished my stint as a stringer fixer in Iran, decided to go to Toronto to properly study <laughs> journalism as a postgrad. When I arrived in Canada, I decided this is a great place to live, actually. I went there for two weeks initially um, to visit a friend, and I decided to stay. I enrolled in university. I got a job. I got a life. I got a boyfriend, a flat, friends, everything. After about three years, I was on a work trip in Syria, actually. I was in Damascus. And when I came back, an old friend of mine who was an editor and a book publisher in Iran called me and said, I looked for you. I tried calling you. This is early days of email, by the way. You were really lucky if you had a laptop or a university right. email account. <laughs> Hotmail was the only thing or AOL.com. Mid-90s, about? Yes, 90. 798. Yep. Um, so he called me from Iran and said, I saw this ad in the Economist magazine. I thought it's right up your alley. They're looking for a producer in BBC's Persian service in London. Uh, I couldn't find you, but because we'd worked together, I had one of your old resumes from a few years ago. 
So I'm sorry, I took the liberty and I sent it over to them. Now, if you want, you can follow it up. They may not even get in touch with you, but if they do, it's up to you. I'll leave it to you. And I thought, wow, my life was only beginning to become completely organized and <laughs> relaxed and, and settled in Canada. I had decided this is what I'm going to do. This is my life. This is my job. Just about to finish university. And someone calls me and says, would you like to come to Turkey for a job interview with the BBC? And the BBC, you know, huge name. I'm like, hmm, yeah, yeah actually, wait a wait, second. The, I'm wait, just wait, 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 in. wait, wait, the job interview was in Turkey, not in London? Yes. No, it wasn't in London because they got fresh applicants from Iran who would get into trouble if the Iranian government knew that they're applying for a job with the BBC. <laughs> so we, we, they used to do job interviews in Cyprus or Dubai or yeah. Turkey or, or other places. And a group of people from a variety of places. I happened to go from Canada, but some people came from Iran. Some people came from other countries. Um, you go there, you apply for the job, you, you, get interviewed, you do a written test, a spoken test, etc. job interview after job interview for a number of days. And then they tell you if you got the job. <laughs> and you got the job. I got the job. <laughs> and I was like, um, I've got a life that is just about to start properly with my residency permit and, you know, my job and my flat. And I loved my life in Canada. And my friends in Toronto are still my closest and best group of my posse are all there and it was a very difficult decision to make and again it was like a train is passing you by in high speed and you suddenly decide <laughs> to change track and you just sort of hang on to a handlebar on the side and get swept away with it and by the way we don't call it flat here we call it an apartment or a condo <laughs> <laughs> i used to say toronto for 20 years now i say toronto yeah, very proper <laughs> you're very proper now i'm imagining that when you first moved to london and you're taking this gig with bbc persian it's a radio gig you have no sense that you're going to spend more than 20 years at the bbc right this is just uh, no. let me go explore what this is no one of the funniest things anyone ever told me was that I had worked for only English media for seven, eight years by then. And I had made, you know, sort of a name for myself in that crowd. And I suddenly go to writing stories and delivering stories in Farsi, which I hadn't done and I wasn't really prepared for. I was very good at translating and, you know, doing live interpretation online or on air. But I really didn't imagine myself as a presenter of programs in Farsi. I always thought my niche back in Iran was that I spoke English. But when you come to another country, you're just a regular other person who right. speaks English, right. probably not as uh, nicely as everybody else does. And, and my mother called me after about a year and said, it's amazing because uh, since you've moved to London, your Farsi has become much better. Because <laughs> I was one of these Americanized kids who spoke half Inglisi, Pingilisi, mixed up language yeah, in yeah, Iran yeah, since yeah, I was right. a kid, yeah. much to my parents' frustration. When you started BBC Persian on radio, um, what, what surprised you the most uh, with this new official job in Farsi as a broadcaster? Do you remember what, what it was that, was that was new for you? Becoming uh, part of the story, like putting your name and your face out there, 
was something that I wasn't prepared for. And I started in radio, so I had about a day or two to decide to go on air and present something. And suddenly I was like, whoa, wait a second, this is going to have repercussions. Um, I'm, I'm going on air. This, is, this means I'm exposing, I don't know, a part of me that I wasn't really, I hadn't thought of that until then. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much it, because the rest of the work is really the same kind of work. I was covering Iran. In Iran, I was covering Iran. In London, I was covering Iran most of the time. But I did a lot of international news as well. You you go from radio to TV famously, and uh, and I'm going to ask you about that. But do you do you have a preference between radio and TV? I radio mean, I, is I, my I, first love. Yes. <laughs> and, t- and why? Yeah. Why is that for you? I think it's more genuine. It's more yourself. It's more one-to-one personal. I'm not really keen about putting makeup on and having my hair done every day and dressing up like 10 years older than I really want to look like and sort of sitting there prim and proper having a smile on my face at 5 a.m. or 3 a.m. or whatever ungodly hour it is. And, And one of the nicest things one of my editors said to me when I got the TV presenting job, I'd actually applied for reporter and they chose me as a lead presenter. And the uh, director of that team said, um, you didn't apply for a presenter. Why? I said, I'm, I'm not really keen on being like the face in front and said, don't ever say that to anyone else again, because all TV presenters love to see themselves on TV. <laughs> you should too. <laughs> get, get working on that bit. <laughs> you know, it's something I that- still, by the way, I still cringe at seeing or hearing myself afterwards. I never listen to any of the programs I do afterwards. Oh, really? Well, if I do, well, even I, when you do like a, doc, a documentary or something, you won't watch it afterwards? I watch it before it goes on air just to make sure there are no terrible mistakes in it. But I don't watch it afterwards or I don't like listening to my own voice, which is weird because it's probably my It is weird. Because you, yeah, you have a very recognizable voice. Uh, Thank you. We have team members. When I was doing the research and listening to various interviews that you've done and work you've done over the years, people would walk by the office and go, oh, is that Pune? Like they could recognize you from your voice right away. So it's clearly uh, uh, very recognizable. That's really nice. I was once in a taxi in, in Afghanistan and I said the directions and the driver in high speed suddenly turned back and said, oh, I know you. Hi, hi. Oh, it's you. And I was like, yes, thank you. I love you, but please keep your eye on the road. I've had that driver. I think he moved to Toronto. I, I, he's the same guy who turns around every time. Now, yeah. it's interesting because this, um, uh, just to meditate on the question of radio and TV for a second, it's been a, it's been a struggle a little bit with even with Rook for me because from the time we launched this thing, uh, people have been saying, "Put up video. You guys should do video." And and because of the pandemic, it was like, "Well, we we should really start with audio because we can't have people in the studio. Not a lot of people are traveling yeah. to and from Toronto and all of that." But then Zoom started, and you know, every network in the world is using Zoom, and it's easy. And so, why aren't we using Zoom? And the reason is because I I really believe with long form interviews. I mean, now we're sort of kowtowing to it and doing it and putting up some rook moments. But I I, I really think especially with a long form interview, when it's audio, there is a focus that the listener has that is just more intense, 
more maybe more innocent and and more profound than when you combine it with visuals i mean and i've felt because i've done i've done both tv and radio and i remember doing what i thought were great reports on tv or great broadcast you know events or something on tv and then the comments and the letters coming in all being where did he get his jacket what's up with the hair i thought it was interesting when he looked at you just kind of go the most intense programs like about Ressos. I don't know if you know what Ressos is, but Ressos is a part of Islamic Sharia law, which means if someone kills your son, you go kill their son or do equal eye for an eye kind of a punishment. And one of the probably most heavy duty programs I ever hosted was interviewing a woman in Iran who had had acid thrown on her face And for seven or eight years, she had been fighting to get the boy who was imprisoned um, punished in the same equal way. And at some point, the courts judged that, yes, she can go to the prison or get a doctor to go to the prison and drip acid into the boy's eyes and blind him equally. And she was very pleased with that result. And she came on air to defend her decision to go do this in the next few days. And this was a call-in program. And a lot of people from all around the country called in, either begging her not to do it because they said it's inhumane, it's, you know, what's the point in revenge? A lot of people called in and said, yes, you go, girl, well done. Go, go do this. Good for you. You deserve this revenge. The mother of the son who had been in prison for eight years already called and started screaming and wailing on air, begging the girl not to do this. I was all choked up. I could barely hold the conversation with like 50 people coming and going into the show. And it was a very tense and nervous and difficult program to host because it was quite sad. There was a lot of very emotional, impactful moments in it. And it was a 55-minute show, just imagine that, yes. with about 20 callers coming and going and, and you know text messages and tweets and everything. So finish hosting the show, come off air. My shoulders are like tense like this, and I still have this lump in my throat. I come off air, my colleagues say, this has been one of our most successful shows. There've been 2000 emails and messages coming in while you've been on air. Go and check them out. I go sit at my desk, pour myself a tea, click randomly on one of those emails. And it says, Pune Khanum, you look really nice in that pink sweater. Please don't wear gray anymore. Wear pink always. Right. And, you know, I just wanted to bang my head to my desk and my desktop right there and go, you know, everyone's been ripping their throats for the past hour. And this is really all you pick up your laptop or phone and that's all you have to tell us. Working in radio, for me, the beauty of it is you have to be a better journalist because you have to explain the picture and make the people see that seen by your descriptions because they cannot see when you say i'm standing at this crossroad and people are passing and Mm -hmm. the sun is at this angle and there's a smell of dust in the air and that kind of thing when you're on tv you're just standing there at some crossroad and people can see what's happening so you just say what the actual bloody story is and i think you have to be much more of an artist with words and with emotions and with storytelling in order to make radio come to life well there's something else too which is that when you're in print uh, as you were in your early years or when you're in radio 
no matter how popular you are, you're still relatively anonymous. You, you know, yes. when when you're when you're out and about, uh, you end up moving yeah. from BBC Persian Radio to BBC Persian TV quite famously. And by the time you have your popular show Nobata Shoma on BBC Persian, you become very well known in Iran. By the way, I've been told that of all the Iranians in the diaspora that are celebrities back in Iran, it's often the anchors and broadcasters on the big networks because that's sort of the big show in terms of <laughs> what people can get with satellite, etc. How, how was that for you, becoming this... Uh, because now that's different from just being a journalist and going into the media. Now you're you've become very well known back in your home country uh, on BBC television. Yes, it had a variety of kinds of repercussions for me personally, professionally, and for my family and people close to me. Uh, part of it is the typical thing of you know you're a bit more well known. Luckily, walking on the streets of London, few people would recognize me because of watching Persian TV. Luckily, I didn't walk on the streets of Tehran at that time. I don't know, to be honest, I don't know how many people would recognize me or whether it would be more pleasant or less. <laughs> but um, it became more and more difficult for, to work as a journalist because the focus of the apparatus in Iran on you becomes much stronger. They start feeling the threat of this broadcasting corporation getting into people's hearts and minds a lot more. And it sort of scares them. And they start bothering you a lot more for it. And not just harassing me or, you know, putting up stories or fake news or trolling or death threats or jokey threats or whatever. But a lot of people who weren't prepared or didn't sign up for this the way I did, including my parents, my brother, my closer relatives and friends, got sort of entangled in that in a way that I would have really not wanted for them to. And they hadn't really decided it. I'm really, really extremely lucky that everyone was supportive and appreciative of, of what I did. I kept asking people around me, are you sure this is not too much of a hassle for you? Are you sure you're happy for me to go on air tomorrow, continue doing this? They knew that I loved my job and they had my back because otherwise it would be difficult. I'm sure not just me, but all of the journalists who work on Iran stories, whether they're in Iran or outside of Iran, I'm sure you've heard dozens of stories of arrests or harassment or people having to leave Iran with nothing through the border walking. Of course. Um, I, I haven't been terribly harmed as, as many of those have, but I've had my fair share. <laughs> I wasn't going to go here just yet, but let me go here but it, since we're talking about it. I mean, just to put a fine point on it, it's no secret that there are pressures working for BBC Persian. I mean, it's, it, it's really almost quite unique uh, in the media landscape, even in the polarized media landscape of, of today's world, because with BBC Persian and Iranians will understand what I'm saying this, even if they hate that I'm interviewing you or they love you or whatever it is, that you kind of, with BBC Persian, take it from all sides. At least that's the that's the that's uh, my observation. It, it, I mean, regularly seems like no one in the broader Iranian debate is happy with BBC Persian. You're either being attacked by the regime or you're yeah. being considered part of the regime. And so, you, yeah, my, I always say, sorry to jump in, but I always say, just think for a moment, if we are part of the regime or servicing the regime, as many may think we are, 
then why do you think we haven't been able to go back to the country or see our parents or our parents and relatives have been harassed and arrested in Iran? And, you know, why do you think there's been so much trouble for us? If they love us this much, if we are collaborators, we should be able to go have a much more easy life than we have. It's got to wear you down, though. Without that, I mean, just the constant parade of criticism uh, from all corners. How, how do you deal with that? Or how did you deal with that? Well, some of it is so pathetic and comedic sometimes that it's really easy to rub it off like, a, you know, water off a wet duck's back. For example, my parents were jogging in a park one day some years ago. There is this temporary exhibition in some corner of a park called like espionage or treachery and treason exhibition. And as they're jogging, they see a full-size cardboard cut-up of me. <laughs> they just run past it and they go, wait a second, was that my daughter? <laughs> it's Yes, it's a cardboard full-size cut-up of me and other treacherous, treasonous journalists. Um, who work for evil foreign media. Those bits are jokey enough. Maybe, it, it, of course, it, I'm sure it does give shivers down anybody's spine. Or when they made up stories about my boss at BBC Persian attacking me, raping me, then discarding me for a new lover, and that's why I've been um, eliminated from my top presenter job. They're so pathetic and sometimes tragic comic that you sort of think no idiot would believe this and people will hopefully be smart enough to just shrug and laugh at it but at the same time yes you do realize i am doing something that is tickling somewhere in some people <laughs> that is making them do this and i think that in itself is kind of satisfying hmm. As, as Oscar Wilde says, there's only one thing worse than being talked about, and that <laughs> right. is not being talked about. Right, right. So I think as long as people are angry from both sides or expect more from you from both sides or have comments about what you should do more of or less of, it means they're watching. It means they're interested. There's something else that's very interesting about being a, a broadcaster uh, outside of Iran, broadcasting back to Iran. And I, I, I want to ask you this as a broadcaster. I mean, it's it's still so fascinating to me, the plight of an Iranian broadcaster outside of Iran, because you are mostly broadcasting to an audience. And I've talked to, you know, Kambi Soseni or Fardad Farahzad about this. All my buddies. <laughs> All your buddies about this, uh, but because uh, it's endlessly interesting to me. You're, you are mostly broadcasting to an audience that you're not going to see in person or even have any access to. Which oh, is, hopefully I am one day. Well, okay. I'm not. You know, I'm not okay, one day. But I mean, the, the part of the idea is, uh, you know, I'm going to broadcast to the, the people across the street. So let me go visit with the people across the street so I can build a sense of community with them. I mean, when you have that barrier that you're excommunicated from the, and, 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 and pulled away from the people that you, who are actually the ones watching you, it's a, such an interesting paradox and, and such an interesting anyone obstacle. Anyone who gets in it. touch with you or calls you or gives you an interview, you know that they're going to get into trouble. They know that they're probably going to get into trouble. And, you know, forget about officials, non-officials, 
when they pick up the phone and they decide to call the BBC and be a citizen journalist and talk to you, they know the risks they're taking, especially at heightened times of crisis when there's protests or when there's demonstrations happening in the country. And you really have to respect that because I'm sitting in my safe home in London. Well, I did have a couple of threats or a couple of stalkers following me. I had like security at the BBC heightened around me for a while, but that's really nothing compared to people who pick up the phone and call the BBC. And when they hang up, someone from the Iranian apparatus calls them immediately and says, I know you just called them. Don't you ever do that or come show up for a questioning tomorrow. Wow. You have to respect that. So I can't complain in, in comparison with people who risk a lot more doing what they do. You end up anchoring at BBC World then in English. And I was thinking about that because I'm, I was thinking that audience is likely exponentially larger than the BBC Persian audience. I mean, probably in the millions more. But I'm assuming about 450 million. Okay. More, oh, well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> but but I'm assuming that it would have been. And by the way, you're great in English. I mean, it, it, it's, not, it's even you. silly to say it because you're you're. A I'm natural. known as the person with the weird dodgy accent. You can't place where she's that, from. That's right. But I'm assuming that it was less hassle to be broadcasting to ten times more people, right? Just because you don't have to deal with all the inner politics of uh, of and cultural issues and and issues with the regime and all of that by working in Farsi. Absolutely, it was quite lovely arriving in the airport in the States or in Nigeria or in Nepal or in Hong Kong and being welcomed <laughs> by passport people, by police, by people who just come to pick you up because they recognize you as a BBC person and they respect you immediately because they think, oh, these are the good guys. <laughs> They're doing something right. Rather than being feeling like you're targeted for what you're doing all the time. And that's quite lovely. When, when you go to conferences around the world and you speak and you realize what kind of a reputation and trust the BBC still enjoys globally in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in the Middle East, in Europe, in Africa, in Asia, it sort of just makes you feel a lot more proud. Because when you get bogged down in one region, which you are personally involved with, your family, your life, your background is very much intertwined with, it's very easy to forget all of that, the proportions of it. You know, um, one of the things that really is clear about you and, and the work you've done at BBC World, the work you continue to do as a journalist, and I guess even before you were at BBC, is not being shy about going to the, the hot spots. Uh, you alluded to earlier being arrested in various countries. You've clearly been all <laughs> over the world. And and I want to go back to now that question. I said I wanted to come back to it. I did flag it in my mind, that question your dad asked you uh, when he was at the BAM earthquake and he's thinking about his 18-year-old daughter 13 years earlier uh, on the earthquake scene and thinking, how, how, did you, how did you even get through this? How do you... Punajan cover Iran or other difficult places and stories around the world without letting it affect your psyche? I mean, as a journalist on the front lines covering everything from earthquakes to executions, what what is your prescription for staying sane? Uh, I don't want to sound preachy. It's not easy and it's not done just like this. I've lost 
too many very close friends along the way to to speak in a blasé kind of a way. Um, some of the top journalists who've lost their lives in the past decade have been my close friends, Daniel Pearl, Marie Colvin, Kabe Golestan, being a few of them. It always affects you, it impacts you, it's very unhealthy. If you're good and if you're, the organization you work for is good, you have to go through professional help a lot of times um, or take a break for a while, but always keeping in mind the reason you're doing this and the effect and impact it's going to have on the people really helps for me. Having a perspective of how important what you're doing is and who it really actually helps and whether it really educates one single person at a time or helps one single person at a time ask a difficult question from themselves is just really beautiful and rewarding. I heard your interview with um, Combees the other day mm -hmm. and I loved the last, I think it was the last answer he gave of like, his best feeling was just when someone calls him and says, for example, I didn't commit suicide because I listened to your program. Yeah. And it, these are those individual bits of impact and, and effect that you have. And we don't want to fool ourselves. We don't want to think like we're changing the world overnight. Nobody is. But for example, one of the most sweet compliments I ever got when I was at BBC Persian was a professor at Tehran University who came to London for an event took me aside at a conference and said, I have a classroom, we have debates hmm. on political science. And in the middle of an argument or fight among 10 students um, supervised by me in this class, one of the students suddenly said, wait a second, wait a second, let's debate the nobata shoma kind of a way, <laughs> in a civil way, like respectful way, without shouting or being rude to each other. And do you realize this is the impact that Nobata Shomal has had on at least that class of, I don't know, 18, 19 year old students in Tehran. And I thought that's lovely that a professor notices that the level of civility in debate has changed mm. in a conversation. That's, that's pure gold for me. <laughs> Do you feel like you have a, a thick skin? I mean, like a like a, oh, like a, like a, like a rhinoceros. <laughs> well, so like a, I was thinking about nurses or aid workers or defense Absolutely. lawyers, you know, people who've seen it all, you know, who kind of go, uh, who don't, I mean, if you see something, you're in Afghanistan or Syria or whatever, you don't even have to be there. You could be in inner city of North America. Is it that you don't break down at the end of the night and you used to? I mean, how, how, how would you express that, how, how that thick skin manifests? Yes, it is difficult. It is, it is uncomfortable. It is sad. And yes, you definitely develop a tougher skin. The kinds of TV shows and Hollywood films I watch very comfortably until midnight and then turn the TV off and go to bed, which would make a lot of people lose sleep. <laughs> are quite disconcerting sometimes. <laughs> Whenever I suggest to my friends, you should watch this TV series or this program, they always say, wait a second, wait a second, her standards and <laughs> gore and, and are very different from us. <laughs> what about what about political objectivity? And not, I don't mean, are you pro-regime or not, or Iran, because that, it's we can go on forever with that. But, but there is a pressure on Iranians 
covering Iran to speak out just because of atrocities, planes being shot down, human rights violations. I, I'm reminded of, uh, it's it's something that documentary filmmakers always face. We had the, um, we, we were covering the, the, the documentary Sonita about the young female rapper who was in Iran and Afghanistan and, and the documentary mm-hmm. maker is following her. And there's this moment where this teenager who's a great rapper and has her whole life ahead of her is going to get sold off to be married unless the documentary uh, maker hands over to two thousand dollars and can take her and you know there's that moral and ethical and broadcasting question of well do i do i give the two thousand dollars or as a documentarian do i say that's not my gig i'm here to just show the reality uh how have you learned to walk that line I'm a strong believer, and I know a lot of you guys, <laughs> including you and Combis in your conversation a few days ago, think this makes journalism bland or boring or toothless sometimes. But I must say, I'm, a, I'm an advocate for keeping your distance, keeping your opinions to yourself on air and off air if you're a public personality. Mm-hmm in order to allow the people to not be affected by your opinions directly. Some of my friends are strong campaigners for whatever cause. I don't sign any petitions because I think it's not my part to have my signature. It's not my place to have my signature under anything because then I won't be able to fairly interrogate that cause or interview or ask questions from whoever is pro or against that cause. Gotcha. So you wouldn't wouldn't tweet... Don't execute Navid Afkari. I would. You would. There are there are some things. If I wouldn't necessarily about, for example, Navid Afkari, but there are some things that you have to take sides on. Like what? Homophobia, uh, for example, slavery. There are some things that are in the UN Convention. They are facts, and racism is wrong. Homophobia is wrong killing people, massacre, genocide is wrong. Gotcha. I cannot, I have many personal friends who are in prison right now in Iran or other countries. I personally have my opinions about whether they're innocent or guilty, whether they deserve to be in prison or not. But I cannot claim that I can make judicial rulings on anything. And I know the judiciaries of what countries I trust and what countries don't count for a penny um their their judicial systems i'm well aware of that but i'm not going to dismiss anyone's innocence or anyone's proof of innocence without being a hundred percent sure i'm going to campaign for fair trials and people who are innocent to be freed but I'm not going to be sure which ones of these people you're probably going to name or hashtag in a line for me are among those and which are not. And if I became a campaigner, free this person, free that person, don't do this, don't do that, then I've lost my place as a, as a middleman, as a middle person who's supposed to be that, that wall in the squash game. 
not the tennis player. By by the way, but you threw me and Combees in the same uh, boat there. If I talk about a bland broadcast or a beige or vanilla or whatever it is, I'm not necessarily suggesting that. I actually agree with you about opinions uh, when it comes to uh, especially anchors. You know, I I think that there there has to be, at the very least, the postulate of objectivity. Nobody is completely objective. We all know that. But but, uh, some of them do become too vanilla and too bland i agree that's with you. that's it's, what it's I'm the about, yeah. charm and the skill of the presenter and the producer and the program making to not make it dull you don't have to shout at people and and dismiss people right, or condemn right. people to be interesting on no sorry now i mentioned it <laughs> i mentioned in the introduction that you are someone who is in the unique position to have been uh, world class, who who is world class as an anchor in both Farsi and in English. So, you can I figure shed some insights into this that very few could. How is it different presenting in English to an English audience versus a Persian one? In other words, are you is it the same rules? Are you the same person? Do you do, do you do the same things really, or or do you feel like you have to speak slightly in a different way, or cheat your body in a different way, or explain things slower or faster? Uh, talk to me about that. Interesting question. I don't think I've ever quite evaluated that in my own head. Um, I don't have different personas for different programs, that's for sure. <laughs> um, but I do remember when I was on Persian programs, I felt, because I'm not a very conservative person, I'm, I'm maybe more westernized than, than half of the Iranian or Afghan or Tajik audience would maybe appreciate or like a TV face to be. I always felt that I have to be more well-behaved and more ladylike and maybe a little bit more demure in the way I dress, for example when I'm on Persian TV, because the audience is not used to it as such. Mm. But at the same time, I was very adamant and very uh, sneakily keen to push those boundaries centimeter by centimeter and word by word, and and not fall for that conservative mentality of, you know, your, your older uncle would not approve of this, or mm the older gentleman in Afghanistan who's more um, religious than you are would not approve of the way you're dressing or the way you're speaking. This is the BBC. It is not Iranian state TV. So there has to be a standard of difference. And this is a European Western mindset and institution. So I'm not going to look like Islamic TV does or Afghan TV or Persian state TV does. But at the same time, you have to respect sensitivities to some extent while constantly trying to push them and, and open them up to the extent that you can. I felt I was a lot more comfortable wearing what I wanted or joking about things as I wanted uh, when I had 400 million more audiences. <laughs> it's, ironic, it's ironic, isn't it? Yeah. It's weird to say this. I don't think I've ever said this before, but you know, there are a lot of Iranian restaurants in Toronto as well. If I ever go to an Iranian restaurant with my group of friends or my family in London, I always feel that I have to be a little bit more aware of my behavior than if I go to another restaurant where I don't feel I may be as much recognizable. 
where you're a drunken sot. So, yeah, 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 let's go. <laughs> Listen, uh, you, yeah. you, um, you do still do lots of broadcasting, but you are now primarily. I working. do occasionally broadcasting now. Sure, yes. yeah, but you've got this gig on global partnerships, business representing BBC. That that is a different kind of front line from covering a war or anchoring on air during a crisis. Do you? Do you? I mean, it's the obvious question. Do you miss the adrenaline of being on the air? Not yet, but a lot of people, even at work, they ask me, you were a presenter. What are you doing in business development team now? Um, I need change and I need new challenges and I need new adventures all the time. And in the past 20 years, I've maybe worked in 10, 15 different departments at the BBC, English, language services, training, um, social media, editorial projects, different English programs, different Farsi programs. And there came a point about two, three years ago when I thought I need, I need a new field of interest and I need to learn something. Sort of maybe plateaued or maybe become a little bit been there, done that with producing, presenting, editing, hosting shows, going to dangerous places. Sure, sure. <laughs> maybe, I, maybe I grew up a little bit or matured a little bit as well. But the adrenaline wasn't quite doing it for me. And I think I just wanted to find out. And also, to be honest, the media world is heading in that direction when you really, where you really want to find out how can it sustain itself in this world of social media. Everyone's calling us now legacy media, which <laughs> seems a bit offensive. <laughs> I feel like a dinosaur when somebody says that to me. It's sort of... You have to keep this place, you have to sustain and survive as an institution. So what my team does is try to bring external funding into the BBC, make partnerships with other organizations to continue in the path of making the same programs that we are trying to make. If we had all the budget in the world, we would have loved to make anyway, as in they fit our editorial framework anyway right, right. so it's it's quite thrilling it's not it's not boring or dull i'm not sitting behind a desk doing um, office work all the time <laughs> how do you feel about social media i love it and loathe it <laughs> no i don't loathe it as much as everybody thinks it's toxic or poisonous i think it could be used in much wiser cleverer more useful ways rather than just you know doing kim kardashian <laughs> video mimes i think everything has its place but this is such a gigantic endeavor and such a gigantic advent in the world that we could have made so much better use yeah of. you see if, if somebody could snap their fingers and get rid of social and say social media never existed uh most days i think that that would be a good thing i mean i i think no it's uh, but, super democratizing well if that's the it. part that's the part i love that's the part i love that 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 people that it has given voice to people who wouldn't have a voice uh elsewhere starting from the green movement i mean that's where to you know in in, in 2009 Absolutely. Iran. but that said you put it on uh, you know on the scale with the, the kind of damage it does I, i'm not sure i'm not sure if i think i'm it's sure that the positive weight is heavier than the other side still yeah. and uh, i don't i know you're a rock dude <laughs> you're a, rock a dude. music buff mm -hmm. as much as i am there was an interview 
I think in the 80s with David Bowie. 90s. Early 90s. When he predicted When he was talking about internet coming and social media coming and how it's going to change the world. And Jeremy Paxman, whom I worked with, I was on Newsnight for about a year, is just, he was one of the best presenters on the BBC ever, one of the biggest faces. And he was saying, come on, it's a fad. It's it's not going to (laughs) take up, is it? He was just so dismissive. I'm embarrassed to remember it. And David Bowie was just saying, do you realize the power it's going to have, the changes it's going to create? And I think that kind of vision, if everybody had that, or at least a few more people Mm. had that to understand the power and the weight and the positivity that it can bring in educating people, in saving people's lives, in entertaining and informing people, I'm, I'm a huge advocate for it. And the cat videos and Kim Kardashian videos can have their their own fair share. I'm all for that. You have forever won my heart by referencing a Bowie uh, uh, comment, but I think what he said. <laughs> I think what he said. What the amazing part of what he said was he said, Do you, "You, we have no idea where this is going, but it's going to change the way people think." That, and and he was right. He was the only you know one of these people saying that. What about He's the a clairvoyant? There. He, he, genius he's a savant yeah what before i mean i i I can't keep you forever this has been amazing i i I, i'm asking you questions out of my own curiosity at this point but before i let you go what about the diaspora itself how do you uh, just from your standpoint if uh you know i've i've spoken to this stat a number of times on on this show but you know at at 9 11 there were two million Iranians, or almost 2 million Iranians, living outside of Iran around the world. At this stage, only 20 years later, that could have quadrupled. I mean, we, don't, we it's somewhere between 7 and 10 million. How do you see the Iranian identity evolving now that millions of us are living outside of Iran? Oh, again, it's, it's a bit like the social media question you were asking me. For me, it's a bit like, if only we could make better use of it, come together and do better. God, what we could do with it. Um, My partner, my boyfriend is British. We've been together for 11 years and I am so flattered and I'm so pleased that time and time again, dozens of times in the past decade, when we've come back from a dinner party or an art gallery or, or an event, he just says, oh my God, these Iranian people were so impressive. <laughs> your, your people are so educated. That guy I was talking to at that party was just mind-blowingly sharp, accomplished, interesting, humble, lovely. And I'm an Iranian, so I can't keep saying, oh, look how wonderful we are. We're the best in the world. Iranian this, Iranian that, Persians this. I know you have a chunk in your program, yes. Iranians invented this <laughs> yes, and that, yes. which is true. He always jokes about that with me as well but i think there's this amazing number of amazing people scattered around the world doing amazing things the talent that iran could have taken advantage of and isn't is is dramatic is really upsetting but at the same time if we only came together in a little bit more solidarity and a little bit more kind heart and a pinch of salt of acceptance and tolerance towards each other, we could do such amazing things. And it, it shames me sometimes that we are sometimes so 
I don't know, unfriendly towards each other, competing rather than coming together, always very quick to dismiss an opinion rather than saying, well, they're doing the best they can. Let me do the best I can as well. I wish we could be a little bit more like that. <laughs> it's very Sorry, I'm becoming preachy again. You're, I feel you're... really old when you ask me these questions. <laughs> really? They age related? When I, I uh, How do you see the Iranian? I, well, I mean, you've seen things. So, you know, you're not, you're not 15. You're a, you're a few years old. I'm almost 50. <laughs> well, join the club, sister. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. It is. I really appreciate Mine. the amount of I'm time. I'm humbled. I, I thank you. Uh, please tell me more about how you're humbled. I, I want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just warming up, man. <laughs> uh, it's been a joy. And I, I thank you for uh, the work you've done and for, again, for taking the time to talk to us. And I suspect, I mean, if I were to guess, I, I, I think you're going to be uh, back on the air. Um, I, I don't think you can keep a good person down. And, and that's. I occasionally sneak away from my office and, and present a documentary. I know do you do. Do a program. <laughs> I know you do. I know you do. I we'll do. see more. Uh, I hope to see you before too long. Thank you for this. My pleasure. Thank you. Lovely talking to you. Khodafis. Bye bye. is a world renowned television anchor, radio presenter, output editor, senior producer who has worked with a variety of news, current affairs, features, and interactive programs for the BBC. She is currently the business development manager for global partnerships at the BBC World Service. And Pune Rodoussi joined me from London, England today. Back on for Captain Reza, Groovy Shia, and the fabulous Keon Punek Odusi. I very much enjoyed that. There's so many things that she said in there that are sticking with me. The metaphors are the, the squash court rather than the tennis game uh, when, when she's talking about interviewing and broadcasting. Um, her talk about her dad, uh, that really was quite moving. Her dad calling her and saying, that thing you did at 18, mm -hmm. going and covering that earthquake, how did you possibly do that? Um, lots funny. of interesting. Uh, go ahead. Kia. I was just going to say it's just funny how destiny works sometimes. Like she, she just happened to be at the right place at the right time when you know her path completely changed into a whole new world of broadcasting. Mm -hmm. She wasn't planning on entering it, as far as I know, right? So it just. She always liked telling stories. That's mm -hmm. that's clear, and it was mm -hmm. something she, I, I guess, had learned. She had a facility for. But mm -hmm. yeah, no, it's true. I mean, the other thing is being in, in going to U of T in Toronto, mm -hmm. and then her friend applying for her for BBC Persian, yeah. getting the job that changes the course that's of her crazy. life forever. I mean, yeah, that, yeah it's it's very interesting. Uh, Groovy Shaya. Yeah, I I was a big fan uh, of Pune. I mean, I could say she was the reason that I watched BBC Persian in Nobat Shoma ah. and yeah she was really powerful on, on the show and 
I like her voice also. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's very unique and iconic. Yeah. She called her English accent indeterminate. Like a wh- you can't tell where she's from with her I when she's speaking that. in English. It's true, and it almost at times she sounded a bit Irish, <laughs> you know. And then like yeah. I mean, she didn't. She doesn't have the traditional Persian kind of. Uh, Accent, right. yeah, yeah, like yeah, me. Yeah. 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 You sound Irish. <laughs> also, she 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 also has her throat is more lubricated. Like in general, she doesn't have to. <laughs> I'm gonna get shy. One well, of my big water uh, bottles. Well, I don't understand. Shy, is there nothing? Maybe some hot water <laughs> would help you. But but really, I'm getting older and older in your <laughs> impression. Like by every episode, it gets yeah. like five years older at least. <laughs> Uh, we could put that. Uh, my, <laughs> that's my savvy Roham. We could put that on the clubhouse. Captain <laughs> 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 Reza, have you? Did that interview wake you up yeah, at all? It did wake me yeah, up. You and were actually falling asleep <laughs> earlier in the show <laughs> while we were recording. I Nothing apologize. like the director of the show. I mean, I'm never going to forget this. <laughs> yeah. What were we even? What was? Um, oh yeah. Where do you? Where do you uh, consider home? Mm. Yeah, you know, I, uh, I, I, I guess Canada is a place that I, I <laughs> wake uh, up. It's like he Reza, like lays what is, back. Where He's do like, you, you know, do? You, yeah, he wasn't even near the microphone. <laughs> Usually, Canada, like, do you want Toronto, a cigarette? Or <laughs> I find Toronto is a good place. And, so I swear it was the Tachin. It put me to sleep. And like. Oh P- Pune Kodosi is waiting and Lana like let's listen again and let's just like <laughs> what is this clown show uh, oh, I, I, I guess Canada is alright so alright so it actually uh, invoked a question in my head because I, I always wondered about observation versus participation especially when it comes to investigative filmmaking documentary making or journalism mm-hmm. right and when she was talking about uh, during the uh, earthquake of BAM, a lot of these uh, uh, um, journalists and press people were standing around taking photos and stuff, while a few were helping out and trying to get um, rubbles off of mm-hmm. bodies and stuff like mm-hmm. that. I, it actually made me think. I'm like, yeah. And at one, at one, at what point would you uh, like? Wh- where would you draw the line? Because I remember there was a very controversial photo of a carcass flying around in Africa, waiting for a um, for a baby to an, a human baby to mm-hmm. die, mm-hmm. so that he can eat it essentially. Mm-hmm. And there was a photographer who took a photo of it, got very emotional, and cried and talked about it for a very mm-hmm. long time. And my question was always, why don't you go help that baby instead of crying and taking a photo of it? But mm-hmm. that's maybe that's not his job mm. so it was very thought-provoking when she mm. said that, that what do you what do you've made documentaries before yeah. what's your policy that's a very good question because and I've done investigative documentaries but it's always been like m- so far has been into the like underworld of crime and uh, stuff like that and even getting involved even um, like th- getting involved was never an option and it, it's not necessary it's mm. always about being an unbiased Mm-hmm. Uh, observer, so I've and I've always played that. But, role, they, but right? they, I, I use the I example of I use the example of Sonita during the interview uh-huh. because that's a it's a very simple one that's where, right. you, where you're doing a documentary on a young girl, a young woman. I guess she was mm-hmm. a girl at the time. She's 15 years old, 14 years old, 
And there comes a point when she's got she's talented, she's smart, she's a rapper, uh, and you know that she can make something of her life yeah. if she comes to the West. Yeah. And uh, and there comes a moment where her family from a village in Afghanistan says, no, we want to take her and sell her off to be married. Yeah. And unless you give us $2,000, then you can, you know, emancipate her or whatever. So the filmmaker in that case ends up giving the $2,000, yeah. which is not officially what the documentarian uh, should do, you know, in yeah. terms of staying, not 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 interfering in the subject yeah. matter. But um, what would you do in that case? I would do the same. Yeah. I would do the same. And, uh, yeah, I would do the same. Do you remember the old, uh, I, I don't know if, I, I mean, they were in reruns when I was a kid, So, but yeah, if you've ever watched reruns of the old Star Trek, the first Star Trek yeah. series no, with no, Kirk no. and Spock. Yeah, and yeah, of course. I've they, seen bits of it, but I haven't seen it. They had a concept called the Prime Directive. Mm-hmm. And the Prime Directive is that when you're going down to any planet, mm. especially if you're time traveling mm-hmm. into the past, you can't do anything that changes the course of history yeah. because mm-hmm. you are then affecting the world, the lives. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. so you can't like fall in love with someone or save someone if they're about to die or something. The prime directive is you never interfere. Yeah. Uh, and that, yeah. it reminds me of that. You know, it's mm. kind of a, a, a question it around what you do true. as a uh, as a journalist. But it's also, you're absolutely right. I mean, how can you stand by idly sometimes mm. when, when uh, yeah. Mm. All right, listen, it's Thursday. Uh, and you know what that means. She's a dear friend, a diaspora blend, a gym workout cat, a bicultural brat but lovable, smart, funny, on a journey to discover what we actually discovered. Here we go, Bachaha. It's all Persian to us with Kion Nademi. He's awake now. He wakes up for that. (laughs) First thing he's woken up for. All right, Kion. What do we have in the It's All Persian to Us file today? Well, it's no secret that we come from a culture that admires things of great beauty, such as BMWs, Mercedes Benz, <laughs> Louis Vuitton, Chanel. No, I'm kidding, of course. Well, kind of, you know. Mm-hmm. No, we come from a culture that has deep-rooted appreciation and understanding of nature's beauty, mm. tabiat, as yes. we Persians like to call it. Yes. It plays a role throughout our culture, traditions, art. Just uh, read a few poems by Rumi and you'll know what I'm talking about. So it only makes sense that ancient Persians made this form of art more mainstream. It's outdoors and it's art in Walk, nature. Walking. Gardening. Gardening. Yes, gardening. Oh, and yes, it's a form of gardening. art. Yes, believe it or not, this is something that the Persians popularized, cultivating gardens for aesthetic purposes. Oh. Yes. Before that, gardens were purely used for growing food or farming. Leave it to the Persians, basically, <laughs> to turn anything into a form of luxury. It's in our blood. We, we can't help it. Yeah, that's true. So gardens and green spaces in general have always played a significant role in Persian history and culture. It's part of who we are. It or- this originated as early as 4000 BC, but the clear tradition of it began during the Achaemenid dynasty around 6th century BC, when the oldest Persian garden of record was built for none other than Cyrus the Great in his ancient capital of Pasargard where the outline of the garden still remains visible even to this day. Did you know this, Raza? You're, you're from yeah, Shiraz. Yeah, yeah, I'm from, yeah, 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 I'm from Yeah, Shiraz. so this royal awesome. garden of, is of particular note 
because it was the first form of chahar bagh, translated to fourfold garden, an mm. aesthetically geometrical and symmetrical pattern which became synonymous with Persian gardening. Mm. And so this meant that gardens were carefully designed and intentionally divided into four sections with four major elements within it. So the Persian garden itself was first conceived to symbolize the Garden of Eden, and this is from the Zoroastrian religion. So naturally, the four elements of sky, earth, water, and plants played a major role, both practically and aesthetically. And so this naturally unsuitable environmental conditions of Persia required strategic and creative artificial engineering involving these elements. You know, it's generally a pretty dry land there, yeah, so they yeah, had yeah. to get creative with the space. So water sources, for example, were quite scarce in these regions. So creating a complex irrigation system from underground water channels connecting uh, springs and rivers were key to keep the vegetation nourished. Mm. So they actually put work into this. Speaking of water, this element played a central role. So a large fountain or a pond, for example, was usually placed in the middle of the garden, like playing a central role of the essential, essentially the Persian garden. Wow. And large trees were strategically placed uh, for areas of shading against the sun. And a variety of uh, carefully chosen trees, herbs, flowers with surrounding walls around the garden, creating an enclosure, essentially. So they like, created a little space like they, with an enclosure around so it. So they would put like trees around like strategically yes, placed strategically. Them in places where they wanted shade exactly uh -huh. like the, and making it an art form they kind of you know picked and choose the colors and everything they put a lot of time and effort into this man so mm -hmm. uh, so this garden concept had philosophical purposes so the axis of symmetry was of the utmost importance in Persian culture it's a part of the process and yeah. a part of you know the culture and by the way, these gardens were called pardis in Persian, which is where the English word of paradise representing wow. heaven comes from. And so when Alexander the Great occupied Persian in 334 BC, he adopted this idea of a paradise garden, which was then spread across Greece, then Rome, and soon the world. To this day, evidence of Persian influence can be seen from the uh, Alhambra in Spain, to the Taj Mahal and the Mongolian Garden in India, to the paved and tiled Andalusian courtyards. And so what was once done for practical and survival reasons soon became a symbol of ethereal beauty, the art of gardening. Because, well, you guessed it, it's all Persian to us. So we invented two things, gardening and uh, the word paradise. Basically. Pretty much, yeah. Well, nice. before that, like, you know, gardens naturally occurred. It was part of nature, obviously. But Persians made it a form of art. They actually made it something um, that took up time and like, you know, part of their culture. Did we invent the irrigation system? Yes, we did. We I did, was right? going to get to that soon, oh. Gian. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that I mean, you just threw it in there, and I was like, well, that's important. I was going okay, to tie well, it. Okay, you know, <laughs> this yeah. nobody's so listening. We can, don't worry. <laughs> so actually from this, this is how the Greeks and the Romans, they, uh, they took this up themselves, and they created gardens within their own spaces. So then it became a thing of the elites, where they would create gardens mm -hmm. next to their you know mm -hmm. homes, and they would uh, spend a lot of time in there contemplating life and coming up with ideas. So... 
I like yeah. how we we invented the like it's like a, yes you can have lots of food from your garden but look at mine <laughs> so pretty so beautiful not like yours yeah. oh look at that yeah. do you garden does anybody garden, garden here you yeah. do you've been in my backyard oh I thought some you hired someone to do <laughs> that so did I she never, exactly. she's always like this you know it's like <laughs> the, when I cook she's like oh yo you cook <laughs> like I've, fe- I've literally fed her I thought you, you know? had people doing that for yeah, you yeah I have lots of people who has time for gardening is my question now you know what though uh my mom is an amazing gardener wow and uh she i mean she's famous for her ball right ball yeah. garden for gardens well i mean over the years she's had more than <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah, she's got a landscaping company and everything as well. <laughs> so I, 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 you know, I just kind of my mom. My mom will once in a while. Uh, does do you ever have like your mom give you some plants or something that you can? Yeah, then, I, they always die. I can't uh, take care of plants. I can but barely you, take care of you myself. Can, you can plant them and then they'll grow in your neck yeah, of the woods. Yeah, but then you just have to. It, they take time and effort. You have mm. to actually, you know, mm. look over it like a child. Mm. I can't. Why don't you have your people uh, <laughs> well, maybe. grow the do plants have, for you? Do you have some free time? I like on the how <laughs> you project onto me. Like I, you're the one who has corn fat drivers and you know. You all this time you spend at the studio. When do you find time to well, garden? Actually, that's a good point. That's a good point. I don't have a lot of time to yeah. garden. Yeah, but I love. But I always love it, and I love. I have plants mm. all over my house. I have mm. flowers in my house so that it's, it's I buy for myself. Yeah, I like it's them. Form of because they look pretty. <laughs> that is why. And I just forgot to mention one thing. Fun fact, there's nine gardens among Iran's United Nations World Heritage Sites. Mm. Did you guys know this? No. Okay, well, now you know. That's what, how important that, gardens that, are to us. Mean? What did you mean? It means it? The, these gardens are preserved. They're part of the United Nations World oh, Heritage Sites. Yeah, among so the heritage sites, exactly. nine of them are gardens. Yes, uh. exactly. That's that's how important it is to our you culture. Call those Bogha. <laughs> One more Bogha. time for the cheap yeah, seats. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Keon. We learned again this time uh, gardening is added to the list of things that uh, Persians invented. It's all Persian to us. The fabulous Keon, Gruvishaya, Captain Reza. See you all on Monday. Thank you. Happy one year anniversary. I see you tomorrow. Clubhouse, 4 p.m. Eastern. This is full time for Rook for today. Our website, rookmedia.com. The handiwork of Ponta the Artist, who also joins us on Clubhouse. Rookmedia.com is your one-stop shop for all things Rook. All of our episodes, our guests. Link to our patrons page there as well to support us. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together. Ponta the Artist, Thoughtful Nagin, Producer Susan, The Fabulous Keon, Savi Roham, Master Mohammed, Alay Merdad. Captain Reza Shaya. Thank you to all of you out there supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe on any of our platforms or all of them if you've not done so already. And you can find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. In the meantime, as ever, we say to you, Mizu Mashi. Mizu Mashi.